Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Karina Bemisterfer, host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast. Yes, you heard me right. Daily true crime. Every day, Morning Cup of Murder tells you a straightforward, short-form story about murder, true crime, cold cases, disappearances, serial killers, cults, and more. And I do that all in under 15 minutes. With over three years of stories and over 20 million downloads, the Morning Cup of Murder podcast has become a staple of so many people's daily routines. So why not add it to yours? Stream Morning Cup of Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts. And remember, stay safe. Hey, you most soldiers. I am rebooting a true crime podcast I began long ago called Children of the Void. Children of the Void explores missing child cases and cases about children who are found murdered that are rife with suspicious conduct among the child's inner circle and unanswered questions regarding the potential perpetrator. I will be co-hosting the show with Bonnie Lee, who is also the host of Writing About Crime. The first few episodes of Children of the Void are still available on all download platforms, as well as on YouTube. The new episodes will be released in late November of 2022. Please subscribe and look out for the new releases. Thank you and enjoy the show. 
Hey guys, welcome to the Christmas episode of Human Monsters. First, I will start off with a typical serial killer type humor story about Ronald Dominique, and then I will go into some Florida Man Christmas stories, just for some comic relief to help you get into the spirit of the season. So here we go. Ronald Dominique was born in Thibodeau, Louisiana on January 9, 1964. He grew up in poverty, but his childhood was otherwise unremarkable. That is, except for one development that was rumored to have transpired. Local gossip had it that his mother had sex with her brother while she was married to Ronald's father. There's nothing like being cuckolded by your brother-in-law. As if that wasn't bad enough, Ronald was said to have accidentally walked in on his mother and uncle while they were having sex, as Ronald would grow up to be a sexual deviant on his own terms. Speculation has it that seeing his mother fuck her brother left within him the impression that boundaries and morals are the domain of society at large, prescribed at the macro, but often disregarded at the micro. Whether these rumors had their basis in truth has never been confirmed by concrete evidence. Still, Ronald grew up with an inferiority complex. He was always an interloper among his peers, a situation that did not improve in high school, where he was mocked for his, quote, campy demeanor. Indeed, at an age and environment where most of his male contemporaries were obsessed with sports and muscle cars, he joined the glee club and was a very enthusiastic participant. His peers were not off base when they assumed he was gay but he decided against full disclosure for the time being. Whether its socio-political tides have shifted since then or not, 1970s-era Thibodeau was awash in conservative orthodoxy. Remaining in the closet until after graduating high school was not so much an act of cowardice as it was a survival strategy. After high school, Ronald tried to find acceptance in the gay community of New Orleans. Even there, he felt like an outsider. His eccentricities rubbed the other denizens of the community the wrong way. Instead of camaraderie, he encountered little more than uniform rejection. He had never felt so invisible in his life. A ghost would have enjoyed more social engagement in that district. June 12, 1985. Ronald Dominique ran afoul of the law for the first time. He was charged with telephone harassment. Making prank calls became an avocation of sorts for Dominique. It was lightweight as far as crime goes, and along the lines of what you would expect from a 21-year-old. It was frat boy stuff, even if he wasn't enrolled in college. 1993. Ronald Dominique was accused of another crime. This allegation was no telephone prank a la the Jerky Boys. The police received a report of a sexual assault. Most rape reports involve a female victim. On this occasion, a young male transient claimed that Ronald Dominique tried to rape him at gunpoint. The man met Dominique two days prior and discussed a drug transaction. The day of the alleged rape, the young man showed up at Dominique's residence to buy marijuana, as per their agreement. Dominique was squirrely. He said he didn't want the man to know where he kept his stash. He told him to go to the bathroom and close the door while he retrieved his pot. The man thought Dominique was being excessively paranoid, but he saw it as being of little consequence. It's not unusual for drug traffickers to be secretive. He agreed to sequester himself in the lavatory. After waiting a few minutes, the man heard Dominique approach the door. He told the man he could leave the bathroom. 
When the man stepped out of the bathroom, he was greeted by a gun in his face. Wasting little time, Dominique put the man in handcuffs and stripped him of all of his clothing. While the man was cuffed and naked, Dominique raped him mercilessly. After climaxing, Dominique removed the handcuffs and ordered the man to dress and depart from his home. The man was only too happy to flee. He went straight to a police station. The police weren't sure how to proceed. Homosexual rape is an underreported crime, seldom occurring outside of prison. The police department didn't take it seriously, and, as far as they were concerned, it barely warranted a paper trail. No further action was taken. 1996. Another man reported being sexually assaulted by Ronald Dominique. As he told it, Dominique tied him up, held him captive at knife point, and raped him. This time around, the police took the allegation seriously, and they took Dominique into custody. He didn't make bail and remained in jail while waiting trial. Years later, Dominique would assert that his time in jail molded him into a homicidal psychopath, the worst in Louisiana's history. He was singled out for bullying, as he had been all his life. This time around, the bullying wasn't just verbal. He has said on the record that he was viciously gang-raped. It was carried out with so much malice of forethought and brutality. His rectum was often torn, requiring stitches. These experiences were so traumatic for him, he vowed to himself that he would kill his future victims so that they could not testify against him and put him back behind bars. The case for which Dominique was remanded in jail was dropped due to the lack of evidence. The victim was a vagrant and moved out of New Orleans before he was due to testify in court. Hence, Ronald Dominique was released. Dominique would hold a grudge against the legal system for years, feeling he was falsely accused. He was determined that he would never see the inside of a jail again. It didn't mean that he would avoid that fate by remaining on the right side of the law, however. July 15, 1997. 19-year-old David Mitchell's corpse was found off to the side of Highway 310, roasting in a Louisiana summer heat wave. His pants were down. He had been savagely beaten. The cause of death was ruled to be strangulation. He was a hospital worker. He was also Ronald Dominique's first murder victim. As Dominique told it later, he met Mitchell at a gay bar. Presumably with the promise of a sexual encounter, Dominique led Mitchell out of the bar. There was a sexual exchange all right, except it was not of the consensual variety. Dominique raped Mitchell and followed up by strangling him and dumping his body next to a highway. Many serial killers have what has been dubbed as a, quote, cooling-off period. Whether Ronald Dominique is typical in this regard or not, he did go on the lam for five months. December 14, 1997. Once that period was over, Dominique found a new victim, him being 20-year-old Gary Pierre. Pierre cut a similar profile to David Mitchell. He was young, African-American, and of a similar build. Pierre's remains were found in St. Charles Parish. Gary Pierre was raped before he was strangled to death. Ronald Dominique took another few months off from his killing spree. July 31, 1998. Demonstrating that the age of his victims mattered little to him, Ronald Dominique murdered 38-year-old Larry Ranson. Dominique's next victim was named Oliver LeBanks. 
LeBanks was a drug addict, and he was hard up for money to get high after getting fired from his job due to complications of his addiction. One night at a gay bar called the Rawhide, he met Ronald Dominique. He looked awkward and uncomfortable. LeBanks had become a hustler by then, and there was something about Dominique that suggested he was harmless as far as tricks go. He sat next to Dominique and initiated a conversation. Only Ronald Dominique has been able to tell the rest of the story. At one point, Oliver LeBanks got down to brass tacks and said, You like to have a good time? Having loosened up after a few drinks, Dominique said, I like to fool around. They made a deal so that a service would be rendered and money would change hands. Dominique invited LeBanks to where his car was parked. He agreed to pay LeBanks $30 for oral sex. After LeBanks gave Dominique a blowjob, Dominique had them realign their bodies so that they would wind up in a 69 position. It wasn't long after they arranged themselves into this posture before Dominique became dictatorial and said, Now lie on your stomach. Sodomy wasn't part of the agreement they made. LeBanks certainly didn't get paid for anal sex. Dominique was the customer who always thought he was right, so he flipped LeBanks around and pinned him to the seat. Oliver struggled to pull himself free, but Dominique's weight was too much for him, and Ronald raped him. Oliver asked him to stop, but Ronald ignored him and ejaculated inside his rectal cavity. Now that Ronald was finished, he got off Oliver and said, Now, Get on top of me and rub your thing on me. Oliver was confused, but he complied. Ronald thrusted his ass into the air. Oliver mounted it and began to grind. As he made contact with his rectum, he began to insert himself when Dominique shouted, You was just supposed to rub it. Oliver didn't know it, but he just triggered Ronald Dominique's most traumatic memories from jail. Ronald grabbed a tire iron and clouded Oliver in the head. He wasn't satisfied with a single blow. He pounded LeBanks until he fractured his skull and knocked him out. He was easy prey now. Ronald Dominic grabbed him by the throat and choked the life out of him. October 5th, 1998. Oliver LeBanks was found by municipal workers under an overpass. LeBanks was left without a shirt and wore no shoes. His pants had been pulled down to his ankles. LeBanks was identified shortly after his remains were examined by the coroner because he had a criminal record and his prints were on file. 16-year-old Joseph Brown was found dead. He was devoid of shoes and a shirt. His pants had been pulled down to his ankles. Weeks later, the body of another African-American male was found, that being the remains of Bruce Williams. He was dumped in St. Charles Parish. He died from strangulation and was raped, just like the previously mentioned victims. He was said to have disappeared on November 27, 1998. Ronald Dominique took a staycation from his murder spree. May 30th, 1999. 21-year-old Manuel Reed was murdered by Ronald Dominique. Reed's body was deposited in a dumpster. As Dominique recalled, he met Manuel at a gay bar and propositioned him for sex. He brought Manuel to his car where, in Dominique's words... They, quote, fooled around. This consisted of removing their pants and performing oral sex on each other. They followed up with anal sex. In the middle of this encounter, Manuel went for a turnaround and changed positions, leading to him penetrating Dominique. Ronald was unable to tolerate the pain, 
so he took up his tire iron and pounded Manuel's head. Manuel bobbed in and out of consciousness. Dominique strangled him until, quote, he weren't breathing no more. June 30th, 1999. The remains of 21-year-old Angel Magia were found on the ground in front of a dumpster. It was with this case that the media began to cover the developing story, characterizing the as-yet-unidentified murderer as a serial killer due to the common denominators like the missing shoes and the pants around the ankles. 34-year-old Mitchell Johnson would become Ronald Dominique's latest victim. Like the others, he was slim but muscular and was raped before being strangled. There were signs of forcible restraint on his wrists. His remains were left in the same spot where Oliver LeBanks was found. Before he was killed, Johnson was spotted with a man described as Caucasian, overweight, in his 30s, chubby chipmunk cheeks like he was storing jism for the winter, a receding hairline. He didn't represent the kind of crowd Johnson would normally have run with. A police sketch artist drew up a composition based on a description, and it would prove to be accurate. The sketch was issued to the media, and the offender was dubbed the Bayou Strangler. By November 1999, the sketch was seen in every newspaper in New Orleans. Perhaps coincidentally, most likely not, it was about this time when Dominique resigned from his job, packed up and drove his trailer home to the township of Huma, which was 50 miles away. He parked it in the yard of his sister, Lainey. During his time in Huma, Dominique took a job doing menial labor at a business called Carol Produce. Though he was polite and engaging, he mostly kept to himself and his company was rarely sought. For a serial killer on the lam, such conditions were ideal. The Bayou Strangler's 10th victim was Michael Vincent. As the final moments of the 20th century were drawing to a close on New Year's Eve 1999, the same could be said of Michael Vincent's life. Dominique picked up Michael and they quote-unquote fooled around for some time. Eventually, Michael became uncomfortable with the direction in which Dominique was taking the encounter. He threatened to call the police. This was when Dominique made the decision to kill him. The next day, Michael Vincent's remains were found draped over a barbed wire fence. The coroner concluded during the autopsy that the murderer went to great lengths to avoid leaving forensic evidence behind in his wake. Ronald Dominique took two years off from killing. During that time, he became a delivery driver for Domino's Pizza. He had a brush with the law during that period. He was arrested for getting into a dispute with someone on the street. It got so heated, someone called the police, and he was charged with disturbing the peace. He received a ticket, paid a fine, and that was that. Ultimately, it was difficult for Ronald Dominique to repress his killer instincts. February 10th, 2002. Mardi Gras festivities were underway. A woman accidentally hit a baby carriage with her car. For some reason, this homicidal maniac could not abide such a transgression, and he got into a shouting match with the motorist. She eventually apologized but this was not good enough for Ronald Dominique. He became more hostile to the point that he slapped her across the face. Police soon arrived and took him into custody. After completing a work release program, he was no longer beholden to the law. The following period represented the closest Ronald Dominique came to normalcy at this time in his adult life. He joined a local Lions Club and volunteered with bingo games. He was well-liked at the Lions Club.
It was about this time that his sister's husband, Sam Trimble, gave Dominique permission to park his trailer in the middle of the Dixie shipyard. It was positioned in a large open field. October 2002. 19-year-old Kenneth Fitzgerald Randolph Jr. cut a typical profile as far as Ronald Dominique's victims went. He was a slender and muscular African-American. He was found naked except for a pair of white socks. He was lying in the prone position in a sugarcane field. His body was contorted so that his buttocks were facing upward. Criminologists referred to this tendency to arrange a victim's dead body as, quote, posing, like he had been so dehumanized in Dominique's mind, he was reduced to an object. Abrasions consistent with rope burns were found on his wrists. Coroners noted indicators of trauma to the neck, a product of strangulation. He was raped before he was murdered. A rape kit was performed on his remains. His clothing was sent away for forensic analysis. As detectives awaited the results of the forensic testing, the Bayou Strangler left another corpse behind, 26-year-old Anoka Jones being the victim. Ronald Dominique approached Jones as he was riding his motorcycle. He said, Hey, can we talk? Dominique made a business proposal, one that would have had Anoka generously compensated. Jones went home first. Upon arriving home, Jones told his wife he was going out again, with a cover story that he was, quote, going out for a smoke. He hugged her and told her he loved her for the last time. Whenever he told her he was going out for a smoke, it usually meant he wouldn't be back home for hours. She trusted him, so she didn't give him the third degree. When Ronald Dominique and Anoka Jones met up, Ronald persuaded Jones to let himself be tied up. Once Jones was securely fastened into Dominique's web, Ronald raped him and strangled him unto his death. He covered Jones' body with a blanket and drove through the evening rush hour traffic typical of New Orleans at that time of day. He left Jones' remains under an overpass. Patrolman John Smith discovered Anoka Jones' corpse. Anoka was wearing a t-shirt and a pair of shorts that had been pulled halfway down. There were blood stains around his mouth and abrasions on his back from the rope. There were drag marks on the ground, indicating that his body was hauled to the spot where it was discovered. A couple of young men riding dirt bikes discovered the decomposing remains of 19-year-old Dutrell Woods. The body was baking in a typical Louisiana summer heat wave. It was bloated and coated with flies, with a nursery of maggots soon to appear. The young men were shocked. They reported their discovery to the police immediately. Dutrell Woods was clad only in a pair of shorts and socks. No shirt or shoes were found in the immediate vicinity. Dutrell's body had decomposed to such a degree that identification of his remains was delayed. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep Podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep Podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention 
and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. January 2004. Ronald Dominique's fortunes took a turn for the worst when he was laid off from Carol Produce. He was soon hired to work as a meter reader. Larry Matthews was Ronald Dominique's next victim. He was found by a man who happened to live next door to a criminologist. Matthews wasn't nude like the others. He was wearing a shirt and a pair of sweatpants. He wasn't wearing shoes, however, a calling card of the Bayou Strangler. There were abrasions on his throat and buttocks. Eventually, they would discover that he had been raped. These indicators weren't documented during the first autopsy because there had been a tropical storm and investigators considered that he might have been a casualty of the weather. A corpse was found stuffed into a storage unit. It was found not by eye, but by nose. The putrid stench befouled the air. He was found by an employee of the facility. The man's name was Michael Barnett, and he was found naked. As Dominique described their meeting, he picked Michael up at a filling station close to the Sugar Bowl Motel. Barnett was a hustler, and he offered Dominique a good time for a fee. To quote Dominique, he needed to make some money to pay his boarding house. Dominique offered Barnett $20. Barnett agreed to this price, and Ronald brought him to his trailer. Dominique described what happened next. We sucked each other. Then he tells me I could put it in, and after I do, he wants more money. I told him that was all I had. Michael was furious. He threatened to report Ronald to the police. To avoid both being reported to the law and a trip to the ATM, Dominique strangled Barnett, loaded his corpse into a truck, and stuffed him into the storage unit. February 19, 2005. The corpse of Leon Lorette was found in an open field. Lorette was questioned in the investigation of the murder of Anoka Jones. The men were close friends, and Lorette was cooperative and helpful with the police. Leon had the telltale abrasions on his neck and wrists. Ronald Dominique would later confess to strangling him with an extension cord. Thirty-two-year-old August Terrell Watkins was found at the edge of a ditch near a forest in rural Laforche Parish. He was discovered by a motorist. Watkins was fully dressed. There were indicators of strangulation. Watkins' ex-girlfriend told police she saw August get into a white truck with a white male and an African-American female. The white man was described as overweight and wearing a hat. The police issued an APB about a white truck that had become an item of interest in the investigation. An officer soon spotted a white truck, and he pulled him over immediately. 
He flashed his badge and instructed the driver to get out of the truck. The driver did not question or complain about his detention. The officer patted him down, checked his pockets, and put cuffs on him. Though the officer read him his Miranda rights, he noted moments later, You're not under arrest at this point, but I need to talk to you in reference to an investigation. The man turned out to be the very innocent Michael Jocelyn. Though Jocelyn was acquainted with August Terrell Watkins, it became clear to detectives that he was not the man they were looking for. April 2005. The remains of 23-year-old Kurt Cunningham were found. Like the Bayou Strangler's other victims, he was bound, raped, and strangled. The one thing that set him apart from the other victims was his race. He was white. Before long, 28-year-old African-American Alonzo Hogan was found dead. He had been raped and strangled like the others. August 16, 2005. 17-year-old Wayne Smith was the latest victim to be discovered perished. According to Ronald Dominique's testimony, Wayne flagged him down as he was driving by. He approached Dominique's car and asked him if he was looking for narcotics. Whether or not Dominique was interested in getting high, he lit up when Wayne asked him if he liked to, quote, fool around, code language for sex. They made arrangements to meet after Wayne took his bike away for safekeeping. They commuted to Dixie Shipyard, where Dominique's trailer was still situated. As soon as they got inside, they disrobed and engaged in a sexual encounter. Dominique was consistent with his usual sexual modus operandi, that being bondage. He tied Wayne up and sodomized him. Wayne kept telling Dominique he enjoyed the sex. After Ronald ejaculated, Wayne's countenance changed completely. Dominic claims that suddenly Wayne became angry and demanded more money than they agreed upon. He said that if he did not receive it, he would tell the police that Ronald raped him. This was a recurring motif in Dominic's confessions. He failed to take into account that criminals, drug dealers, and prostitutes among them are anxious to avoid dealing with the police for any reason. That, and being a, quote, rat, is considered to be a serious moral transgression among criminals. Dominique wasn't about to allow this, so he strangled Wayne to death with his extension cord. Once Wayne was dead, he put his clothes back on, put him in the back of his truck, and dumped him in a remote area. At this point, the only thing that put a halt to Ronald Dominique's killing spree was Hurricane Katrina. Once the storm passed, Dominique wreaked destruction in his own right. 40-year-old Chris DeVille was reeling from the hurricane and the aftermath like everyone else in town when he crossed paths with Ronald Dominique. DeVille differed from Dominique's other victims markedly. He was found fully clothed. Unlike the other victims, he was not a drug addict, trafficker, or a prostitute. He was a gainfully employed, tax-paying, law-abiding, upstanding member of the community. He had a brother who was a police officer. The police were under pressure to bring this repeat offender to justice. An officer named Tom Lambert was assigned to the case. He went through a list of recent parolees and asked them if they had had any, quote, strange sexual encounters as of late. A man named John Banning had an interesting story to tell. One day he was walking down the side of a road when a truck pulled up next to him. The driver was Ronald Dominique. He said, hey, want a beer? Where are you going? Up the road? John was intrigued enough to approach the vehicle. Recounting this to Officer Lambert, he said, I was walking down the highway when this guy came along in a black Sonoma truck. He was a fat white guy. John didn't find the man intimidating. He was taken aback when the man asked him if he would like to have sex with a white girl. 
Dominique showed John a photo of an attractive white woman. He said, she'd really like to make it with a guy like you. This wasn't the first occasion when Dominique used this tactic to lure a man into becoming his latest victim. It was usually effective. It worked on John Banning. He got into the vehicle, looking forward to the moment when he could have sex with the woman from the photo. Though the detectives found this story far-fetched at first, they didn't doubt Banning's sincerity, since after years of conducting investigations, they developed an instinct for detecting lies. Nothing suggested that John Banning was being deceptive. He had nothing to gain from it anyway. Elaborating on his decision to get in the car, Banning said, What the hell? You only live once, and what's the worst that could happen? It only occurred to Banning that taking Ronald Dominique up on his offer could be a mistake when Dominique said the woman preferred her men to be hogtied. He said, so, don't be surprised that I want to tie you up. John Banning thought, Well, in for a penny, in for a pound. He stayed in the car. When they walked into Dominique's trailer, which was filthy and cluttered, Ronald said, I'll tie you up now. Take off your clothes. John looked around for a moment and took in the sight of gay-oriented porn magazines scattered around the room, with such possible titles as Black Inches, Blue Boy, Bound and Gagged, Freshman, Honcho, Mandate, Man Shots, Play Guy. Banning began to feel uneasy. Where was that white woman he was promised? This was too sketchy. He was out of there. Dominique didn't try to dissuade him from leaving. Banding agreed to be taken by police to where the trailer was parked. The officers couldn't make an arrest right away due to lack of evidence. However, they took a look in a mailbox and found mail addressed to one Ronald J. Dominique. At least they had a name. The next and most important step was to find evidence that he was, in fact, the Bayou Strangler. The police made a second visit to Dominique's trailer. They wanted to bring him in for questioning. They knocked on the door to his trailer and asked, courteously, We have some questions we'd like to ask you regarding a case we're working on. Would you come with us for an interview? Dominique didn't come across like he was worried he was about to end up in handcuffs. He simply said, sure. Dominique was calm under pressure during the interview. In fact, he appeared to be prepared for the questions that were being asked. When asked why he wanted to tie up John Banning, he said, I'm gay. Tying John up was just part of a sex game. Nothing more than that. The investigators had a secret weapon. Though he had gone to great lengths to avoid leaving DNA evidence behind at the crime scenes, his performance in this area was checkered. Samples of hair and semen were found, and test results revealed that they were not a match for that of the victims. If Ronald J. Dominique were to submit to a DNA test, it would be curtains for him if he were a match. The problem was... At that stage of the investigation, submitting samples was purely voluntary. After all, he wasn't under arrest. Refusing to do so would look suspicious, but suspicious behavior is not a crime. They realized they needed to employ some tactics of psychological manipulation to get him to jerk them a DNA milkshake. So much for coming across as innocent and unassuming, Dominique became rattled and irritable. He said, what's this all about? One of the detectives said, Mr. Dominique, we're just trying to clear these cases we're working on. And so if you could help us, that would be wonderful. They had Dominique's back against the wall, realizing a temper tantrum would reveal far more than he was willing to disclose. He said, I don't have anything to hide. Dominique signed a consent form and underwent a mouth swab. They also cut a lock of his hair. 
It would take a while for the DNA lab to analyze them, but investigators were sure they had found the guilty party. November 5th, 2005. Nick Pellegrin was working on his house when a meter reader who was servicing an order on his property initiated a conversation. The meter reader said, How you doing? Nick didn't expect to find himself socializing with the man. He was too polite to tell him to mind his business, so he mumbled something about carrying out repairs. The meter reader said, Hey, how about I come by later after work and we go and have some fun? Nick fielded propositions like this many times before. He frequently struggled financially and he had resorted to prostitution to make ends meet in the past. He told Dominique he would accommodate him once he was finished fixing his house. Dominique returned a few hours later. Pellegrin got in his vehicle and went to his trailer. Soon after walking into the pigsty, Pellegrin was hogtied. The method of mayhem was different this time around. Ronald bludgeoned Nick into unconsciousness. He raped him while he was passed out. Once he had climaxed, he grabbed Nick by his throat and strangled him to death. Nick Pellegrin's body was found just under a week later. He was fully clothed, but there were scars on his wrists consistent with friction burn from rope. Physical signs of strangulation and sexual assault were also noted by the coroner. The DNA verdict was in. Mitochondrial DNA proved that there was a genetic link between Ronald J. Dominique and the samples given. The problem was, with mitochondrial DNA, it could have just as easily been a relative of Dominique's. With nuclear DNA matches, the results are not nearly as indistinct. Still, investigators were convinced that Ronald Dominique was the offender they were looking for. The only snag was that without a nuclear match, a competent defense attorney could exploit the existence of reasonable doubt and get Dominique acquitted. The police decided to put off laying charges until they could find a way to get stronger DNA evidence linking Ronald J. Dominique to the murders. In the meantime, investigators conducted round-the-clock surveillance to ensure Ronald Dominique would not be able to murder again. It wasn't long before Dominique got wise to them, and he found a way to evade the police. On October 15th, he evaded a police cruiser until he lost it altogether, perhaps by using the godfather tactic of making a U-turn to see if the cruiser would follow him. However he did it, he managed to evade the officers who were watching him. Because of the success of this maneuver, Dominique was able to find a new victim. For a guy who was suspected of being a serial killer and being tailed by police, Ronald Dominique sure was reckless. The corpse of 27-year-old Christopher Sutterfield was found by the side of a road. The police were outraged. They were working overtime to take a serial killer off the streets, and the bastard struck again. Investigators decided they could wait no further. Nothing would stop this mass murderer until he was put behind bars. They decided to file charges against Ronald J. Dominique based on the findings of the mitochondrial evidence. Realizing this outcome was likely assured, Dominique left his trailer and moved into a homeless shelter. He claimed he did it to spare his family the stress of being questioned by police with accusations of harboring Ronald. The police raided the shelter and placed Ronald Dominique under arrest. They brought him to the station for questioning. Dominique blamed his experiences in jail for the 23 murders he committed. One quote from the interview. I proved I was innocent and got out. I was angry. I did something to some of the guys, and then I got raped by a guy, and I protected myself, and I killed him, and then another one tried to rape me and stab me, and I killed him. I then took all the anger out on the rest of the guys, 
and I shouldn't have took it out on them. Ronald J. Dominique did not receive the death penalty, but due to a sentence of eight consecutive life terms, he will only leave prison in a body bag. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast was shocked when the news broke of Rex Hewerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Hewerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the Lisk podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the List podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters, available wherever you get your podcasts. If any of you are looking for any last-minute gift ideas for me, I have one. I like Frank Shirley, my boss, right here tonight. I want him brought from his happy holiday slumber over there on Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And I want him brought right here with a big ribbon on his head. And I want to look him straight in the eye and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood Sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of monkey shit he is! Hallelujah! Holy shit! Where's the Tylenol? It was weeks before Christmas, and Florida was the state. A tweaker was jonesing, and his dealer was late. Here are some Christmas-themed Florida stories to enrich your enjoyment of the season. Florida Man Number 1. Alert Animal Control. Here comes Chad Mason. Chad Mason was not content to let a sleeping dog lie. Not only was he not considerate enough to let it sleep, but he had sex with it in front of children while he took it for a walk. Oh, uh, Jason's journey through the alphabet included 
pit stops at WTNF, yes, but he wasn't finished. He ran to a church in the neighborhood where he wrecked a nativity scene. He also took out his frustration on several innocent potted plants. A mailbox also did not survive his rampage. To top it all off, this man, who clearly believes it is better to steal than give, nabbed a car. 36-year-old Chad Mason was arrested, and Santa's bag was full of charges. Lewd exhibition, exposure of sexual organs, and criminal mischief to a place of worship. Florida man number two, an as-yet-unidentified man, wasn't feeling the holiday spirit, so he tried to suck it out of somebody else. Christmas Eve, 2019, Bradenton, Florida. A man woke up in the middle of the night to find that somebody was sucking on his toes. It wasn't his girlfriend, wife, or Tinder date. To the victim's disappointment, it was just some dude. When he asked the burglar what he was doing, the man said he, quote, was there to suck toes. The homeowner jumped up and a scuffle ensued. As the occupant tried to take control of the intruder, the invader tried to steal his genitals, or at least take temporary ownership of them. He told him he had a gun and would use it if he were not assured of the resident's cooperation. No gun was ever found at the scene. The victim was able to eject the intruder from his house. The invader wasn't finished smearing his own brand of holiday cheer on the house. He smashed a few of the windows and broke the windshield of the man's car. Police used the canine unit to track down the offender by scent, or stench, but he was never located or identified. DNA swabs were taken at the scene, but that Grinch remains at large. Florida man number three. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, keep it away from Thomas Edward Lackey. Christmas is a holiday when families come together to celebrate the holidays. As far as congregating with his parents, 37-year-old Manatee County resident Thomas Edward Lackey had that covered all year long. Christmas just meant more time tolerating his father. Unfortunately, his patience did not last the entire season, and he attacked his father with the Christmas tree. The tree itself missed his father, but undeterred, Thomas took up the steel base and advanced toward his father with it. His parents managed to restrain him before he could follow through with the attack. The police gave Thomas a charge of felony assault that Christmas. Thomas has denied that he tried to beat his father with a Christmas tree. Florida man number four. If Kevin Murphy participates in your secret Santa event, run for cover. I admit to giving myself presents for Christmas. I recently bought a PS5. Kevin Murphy did something along those lines, though his gesture didn't exactly spread joy to others through his own projection of cheer and goodwill toward men. In this case, the men in question were first responders in the community of Okaloosa County, Florida. Murphy set his own truck on fire. His motive had nothing to do with committing insurance fraud. Rather, he did it in the spirit of giving. The problem was, the gift he gave to Okaloosa first responders was, quote, something to do. Apparently, Kevin Murphy is not the type to make promises he has no intention of keeping, for on December 18th, deputies of the sheriff's office heard a loud explosion on Mare Creek Road in the township of Crestview. When firefighters and other first responders arrived at the scene, Murphy's 2002 Chevrolet Silverado was on fire. Murphy remained at the scene and confessed to having started the fire. 
When he was arrested and searched, they found a glass pipe used to smoke methamphetamine and a dollar bill laced with traces of meth in his wallet. Murphy set the fire by pouring gasoline under the truck and on the cab before leaving a trail away from the vehicle, whereupon he set it alight. Nobody was injured, but there were some minor damages to another vehicle parked nearby. Santa left Kevin Murphy charges of second-degree arson, possession of methamphetamine, possession of drug paraphernalia, and a crystal-shaped lump of coal. Florida Man number 5. Zachra Moncada hates Christmas music. And I'm not just talking about that Mariah Carey song. In the spirit of Ebenezer Scrooge, Boca Raton resident Zachary Moncada's typical response to the lyrics of Christmas carols would have been more along the lines of Ba Patrania, Spanish for Ba Humbug. When his neighbor was playing Christmas music at a decibel Moncada found unacceptable, he gave him an early Christmas present. A bullet in his back. Police arrived at the scene at 2.30 p.m. The victim's family had gotten hold of Moncada and were holding him to the ground. As they struggled with him, he squeezed out another shot, though their front lawn caught that bullet. The victim was not publicly identified. His wife has said he not only survived the shot, but was in stable condition. The law was no Scrooge when it came to charges. Zachary Moncada was charged with first-degree premeditated attempted murder, two counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, three counts of battery, and a weapons charge for display of a firearm during a felony. He was held without bail. Florida Man number 6. Richard Atchison looks like a skinny Santa Claus. Just don't ask for help with baking the cookies for his milk. Fruitland Park resident 52-year-old Richard Atchison got a late-life visit from the local sheriff and his sleigh. Richard and his wife got into a heated argument after she asked him to help her cook dinner. Much shouting and gesticulating ensued, and it climaxed with his wife accidentally splashing Richard by dropping a spoon in the sink. Apparently, this was the spoon that broke the camel's back, for he lost his temper, as he put it, whereupon he packed his personal belongings and went to his vehicle. Second thoughts prevailed, for he returned to the house after having sobered up after hours of drinking. He told his wife she should be the one to take a trip to the North Pole and never come back. She called his bluff and decided to leave. Atchison wasn't finished. He shoved her. When this did not deliver the intended impact, he picked up their Christmas tree from the corner of the room and threw it at her, making contact. When she made a dash for the door, he blocked it. He received several charges, among them domestic battery. I'm going to leave you with a special Christmas message delivered by Ricky of the Trailer Park Boys. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters this year, and Merry Christmas. Bye for now. Sorry to interrupt, but I just had one of those brain-learning things pop in my head that wasn't there a second ago. and It's about time to think of me around that basically, what is Christmas? You know, I just got out of jail, which was awesome. You know, in jail we don't have presents and lights and trees. We just get stoned and drunk. It's the best time. You know, I get out here and I'm all stressed out. My girlfriend breaks up with me. And, I mean, that's not what Christmas should be. You should be getting drunk and stoned with your friends and family, people that you love. Who here is drunk right now? How many people here are drunk besides Julian? Like, that is so awesome and dope. God doesn't give a shit if you smoke dope. You're in church so you can't lie. How many people here are stoned right now? Come on, how many people here are stoned right now? That's what I thought. Like, that's Christmas. None of this presents and lights and stress and shit. Just getting drunk and stoned with your friends, family, people that you love. And Bubbles. My friend Bubbles has been trying to teach me what Christmas really is, and I wasn't listening to him. I was at the mall stealing stuff and everything else. Now I realize, and 
He's back at the trailer park by himself right now. And I'm going to go back there with him and I'm going to get drunk and stoned. And everybody in here should do the same thing. Get drunk and stoned with your families. If you don't smoke dope or drink, just spend time with your families. It's awesome. Merry Christmas. I'm going to get drunk and stoned with my friend Bubbles right now. Right on, Ricky.